Hello, this is Devorah Medwin for Revival. Our guest today is Frank Ostaseski, co-founder of the Zen Hospice Project, founder of the Meta Institute, Buddhist teacher, and author of The Five Invitations, discovering what death can teach us about living fully. The invitations are, don't wait, welcome everything, push away nothing, bring your whole self to the experience, find a place of rest in the middle of things, and cultivate don't know mind. My hope is to get this out of the world of end of life and just into the world of life. That's a good idea. Right? Yeah, that's a good idea. Well, you know, as I say in the very beginning, it's a package deal, right? The two of them. So one one informs the other. So I want to start uh, with a quote. The contemplate quote from your book, of course. The contemplation of life, death, and the inherent mystery in each moment is too important to be left to our final hours. Coming to terms with our fears and discovering what dying has to teach us about life are essential to our transformation. These five invitations are a call to that transformation. They can take you to the threshold, but it is up to you to walk on. As Rumi wrote, the door is round and open. Don't go back to sleep. And then you say prior to that, this requires our active engagement. What is yeah. our act? What is that? That means we we need to be doing something more than reading about it and talking. What does that mean? Our active engagement. Well, I mean, I think it's a it's a call to uh, dive deep, you know, to go below the surface of the waves and to um, get into the deeper currents of our life. Um, we're not bystanders to this life. We are participants. And so it's really an encouragement to um, wholeheartedly inquire into these fundamental issues of our life. What is life? What is death? Um, How do we do both well? Um, What's it mean to really love completely? Um, I think that the um, presence of death draws those kind of questions out from us and, and, and asks us to engage both in conversation, in deep contemplation, in um, you know, making active, actively making choices about how we lead our lives. The question that comes up often, though, and and you say the truth is, death is always with us, right? It's an integral part of our lives. Yes. We don't recognize that death is always with us. Well, I think it's because we think of death only as this event that happens at the end of a long road of an illness, for example, Um, or that's only about physical death. But, you know, we know that every moment is coming and going. You know, all of us agree that seasons come and go, that relationships come and go. We think of this as a changing world, but we like to think of ourselves as a solid thing in a changing world. You know, we're the only thing that's not changing. In, in, in this uh, in this flow of uh, constant movement. So I think it helps to regard ourselves as not such a solid thing. Then I think death doesn't become such a boogeyman at the end of life, but we begin to see that we've been living with this kind of uh, coming and going throughout our throughout every day. Yeah. Well, and the idea that 
part of the suffering that happens for us in the lives that we're living right now is that we think we are this solid piece, right? I like to think that I know that I have some certainty in what is happening in life. And your suggestion is to release that idea in itself. Well, you know, yes, there are certain things um, that we can be certain about. (laughs) There are things we can be certain about. Um, But that doesn't mean that um, it's all fixed uh, and and that there's some kind of course of destiny that we're all involved in here. Um, I think it's, I think the opposite of faith, not doubt, I think the opposite of faith is certainty. Mm. And so to really, to embrace the uncertainty of our life, to recognize that we are composed of the, we are made of the same thing as everything else. And when we, when we slip into that, when we understand that the, the nature of uncertainty, I think actually it causes us to relax a little bit. And, um, you know, we, um, then we can, we're free to savor life and taste it and engage in it fully and completely as opposed to, you know, having it all, having some plan that we throw out in front of us and then we try to live into that plan, you know, and, and, and don't let, try not to let anything else, you know, affect our experience. And you say there's value in, in living fully given our current condition. There's value in showing up for what is happening for us right in the moment? I think so. I mean, you know, what else have we got? You know, we've got this moment right in front of us. And uh, this is where we can heal. This is where we can, you know, do good. This is where we can find and, and create justice. Right here, right now. Um, you know, the present moment isn't just, you know, some nanosecond in between time. It includes the past and the future. But this is where we can take action. You know, when you remember your mother or your second grade teacher, that's happening now, right? That memory. Um, so we can fold in the past and fold in our dreams about the future into the present moment. But, but the place we can take action on any of those is right here, right now. Yeah. So then the, the taking action, I love this. I'm going to just say the whole thing here is when confronted by harsh realities in life or even some small discomfort or inconvenience, our instinctive reaction is to run in the opposite direction. But we can't escape suffering. It'll just take us by surprise and whack us in the back of the head. The wiser response is to move toward what hurts, to put our hands and attention gently and mercifully on what we might otherwise want to avoid. I think this is true. At least it's been true for me. You know, I've tried everything possible when I was younger to escape my suffering. I, you know, I grew up in, with a lot of personal pain, family pain. And I did everything possible, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, to try and get away from that experience. But at some juncture, we have to turn toward what hurts. And when we do, and we come to know it, you know, this actually then becomes the ground of compassion. It allows us to make, build an empathetic bridge to other people's experience. There's a story I, I tell in the book that you may have read about, um, I was teaching once in the Northwest, and this... I was talking about this very subject, to turn toward our suffering. And a fellow said to me, well, that's like telephone poles. I didn't know what the hell he was talking about. I said, what do you mean telephone poles? 
And he said, oh, he said, I used to install telephone poles. He said, when you put them in the ground, they can be quite unstable. And they can fall. And if they fall on a man, they can break his back or even kill him. So the first day I was on the job, I, I said to my partner, if that pole starts falling like toward us, I'm running like hell the other way. And he said, uh, my partner, and it was an old timer, and he told me, oh, no, he said, if that pole starts to fall, you want to go right up to it. You want to put your hands right on it. He said, the only safe place to be. I just think it's a beautiful metaphor for our life, you know. We, we, We try and defend ourselves against our suffering or we try and avoid it. We are masters of distraction. And that's our primary practice in this life, to distract ourselves. But suppose we put our hands gently on whatever it is that hurts, tenderly, kindly. Invited it in. Got to know it really well. How might that change our relationship to it? And what might that do for us in allowing us to empathetically meet the suffering of another human being. So what does that look like? You say something very interesting, I thought, when you were talking about meditation and this idea of creating the, you know, we creating the safe holding environment and we talk about creating safe spaces for other people. But this idea of creating the safe space in meditation, because meditation is one of the practices you discuss. Mm-hmm. Right. How do say more about that? Because I think people are familiar, or many of our readers are familiar with meditation in general. But this idea of actually creating a safe holding environment, and you talk about the mother in that. Well, what happens in meditation is that we cultivate our capacity to be aware, and the awareness itself is mirror-like it's, by its nature. That means it can hold whatever comes into that awareness. So normally what happens is a thought arises or a sensation arises in the body and we react to it. You know, We try and do something about it. For example, when a strong emotion arises, we imagine that we can only do one of two things, um, express it or repress it. But there's a third option, and that is to contain it. And that containment isn't repression. It's a willingness to hold it in order to get to know it. And so if we stay with a particular emotional state, we can come to know it. We become familiar with it. So the the, um, corollary here is with what Winnicott called the holding environment. Um, That's when a mother is holding her child, or a mother in person is holding their child. The child walks out, takes a little few steps and falls down. Gets a little nervous. Mom comes along or the mothering person comes along and holds that child, embraces that child, and the child feels safe. And with that safety, the child can will come back to walking a little bit further, maybe go beyond their, uh, their previously held limitation. And it's like that with our inner life. It's like that with our um, individual development. As we kind of hold our experience, we're more able to go deeper, more able to go further into our explorations, precisely because it is a kind, loving, caring environment in which these things can be known. But if our thoughts, and if our emotions, and if our sensations are only met with judgment or hatred, um, first, we don't learn very much from them, and two, they're not likely to keep showing up. They're going to be repressed. So what's it like if a thought comes and we just know it? You know? What's it like if a strong emotion appears and we get to know everything we can about it? 
though we become intimate with it and know it so that we're not pushed around by it so much. So mm-hmm. how do we... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. You're going to... No, um, yeah, I will... Because I think for for many of us, just the just the stopping to take a breath, just the noticing, mm-hmm. is often more than many of us have experienced. Or some of us are lifetime meditators, and this you know may. But the for the the initial practice, right, mm-hmm. to say how do I a person who feels so, uh, so busy and I have kids and I have a job and I have all of these how do I bring it into my life in a yeah, really loving practical way yeah so so let me ask you a question let's, let's take something like fear right which can you know sweep us away right um, usually what happens is fear comes up and we try to get rid of it and when we try to get rid of it we don't know anything about it and so we are victim to that experience when you're afraid, do you know that you're afraid? When I'm afraid, do I know that I'm afraid? A part of me is aware that I'm afraid. Right. Beautiful. So what do you notice about being afraid? What are some of the signs and symptoms of being afraid? I notice the physical sensations. Okay. Like what? I notice butterflies in my stomach. I notice um, more dissociative uh, feeling in my body, uh, shortness of breath. Beautiful, beautiful. You're really clear about that. Okay, and what happens in your mind? If you were to walk into the room of your mind, what kinds of thoughts are going on there? Are you strategizing? Are you planning? What's going on? Maybe all of the above and then 20 other thoughts at the same time. So it's right. a cacophony happening in there. Right, so there can be a whole symphony of, of uh of thoughts, often future focus, often about strategizing or planning. And so what happens is as you get familiar with this fear, you get to know more about it and it's arising. That's the first thing. So you can interact with it before it's in full-blown panic. Now, I want to add one more piece. I noticed that there was a part of you that was able to be aware of those sensations and also of those thoughts that were going on in the mind, right? Yeah. Okay, beautiful. That part of you that's aware is not afraid. It's not afraid. And so you have the option, once you cultivate your contact with that, to either act from the fear, react from the fear, or potentially to make another choice from the vantage point of the awareness, the part of you that's not afraid. And this is really simple. We can do this, but we have to cultivate the ability to stay aware of our experience. Um, normally, our default is reactivity, get away, I don't want to know anything about this experience. And so we, it, we remain, again, victim to whatever thoughts and feelings are emerging in the body, heart, and mind. And this is what happens to us with death, right? Because we keep death at that distance because it's too frightening and therefore never get the chance to experience how much it actually can bring into our lives. Exactly. When we keep anything, death included, at arm's length so that, you know, we, we sort of straight arm it as if we were some kind of football player or something, um, we don't get to know anything about it. Here's the thing. I love life 
And I love the truth. I love to find out what's true. Now, I'm not talking about some big truth like that religion has the corner market on. I mean, just what's true right now. And when I touch what's true right now, more truth reveals itself. And when I'm on that track, um, I'm discovering. Now, for me, the motivation for meditation practice isn't about calming the mind or, you know, looking good or being, you know, appearing spiritual. It's to discover what's true so that I can be more free. I want to be free. So that means I've got to be willing to look. I think if we have a, if we pay attention to our hunger to know what is true, it will um, ask us, invite us into the exploration of death too, and what death can reveal to us about living and loving our life fully and completely. You know, the physical experience of death has things to teach us about how we go through inner transformations in our life, how we grapple with um, the losses of relationship, or the loss of a job, or just how we make identity shifts uh, over the course of our maturing. Yeah, and the piece somehow that we that is kept away from us in all the details when we do experience end of life, we don't get a chance to see that there is value in there because we're so busy taking care of the minutiae. So it's very hard to recognize that there's actually, you know, I think of like the ugly fruit. Inside, there's something really exquisite. But we don't really get to know that. No. I mean, so long as we keep seeing death as the enemy, so long as we keep seeing death as failure, which is still unfortunately the case in our culture, we won't see the value that it has to offer us. Um, You know, I'm a little allergic to the notion of a good death. I think it can place an immense and unnecessary burden on people who are dying. I think we need to take a very hard and maybe wise look into the systems in which people die. You know, we place all the emphasis on the person going through the dying process for them to have a good death as if it were all up to them. You know, I think it's really important for us to examine and improve the systems and conditions in which people die. Let's make them good so that people can die in a way that best suits the individual. Tell this wonderful story that you say about um, when you're going into a sacred place, what that would be like if suddenly the tour bus shows up and there are people, (laughs) right? Yeah. I mean, let's imagine you're going to Chartres Cathedral or to, uh, you know, uh, a beautiful redwood forest or some place in nature that you just love, right? And you settle into a sort of quietness and maybe stability and even reverence for what it is that surrounds you. And then, you know, suddenly a, a tour bus arrives and, you know, the person gets out with a megaphone and starts, you know, saying, here we are at the redwood trees, you know, and... and um, and, you know, it would sort of disrupt the experience for you. And the same is true oftentimes of dying. When we're so busy managing a person's death, we don't allow them to settle in, if you will, to the dying process and to really reap, if you will, the lessons that it has to teach. I mean, the idea of a natural death 
is slowly vanishing from our culture. It's been replaced by a more antiseptic, institutionalized death that's managed, managed mostly by medical professionals, well-meaning people, good people. Uh, and, and I love medicine. I think it has wonderful benefits. Um, and there are remarkable people delivering that care. However, it also has some serious drawbacks. You know? And so I think when we learn to trust the process of dying and trust that there are conditions in dying which are conducive to helping us wake up, helping us discover more of who we are, um, and we begin to encourage people to pay attention to those, I think then we're really doing the work of, of compassionately companioning people. Not just helping them get through a tragedy, but seeing this as a possibility for transformation. And that we're enhancing, I mean, then we're talking about a good life. Well, yeah, the two go together. I mean, I, I say that a life that doesn't include death is kind of half a life. In Buddhism, we speak about impermanence, and it's, you know, it's more than just change, but we could think of change, constant change that we were speaking about earlier. Um, but it's not just things ending. It's things becoming. You know, it's the law of constant change, which means things end and become, end and become. And it's like that with our life as well. Um, this moment is giving rise to the next moment. And how we meet this moment matters enormously in terms of how the next moment arises. You know, I say if you want to learn something about dying, study the way in which you meet endings. How do we meet endings? The end of a meal, the end of a sentence, the end of a relationship, you know, the end of the day. How do we actually meet those endings? What are our habits around it? And I don't have any moral judgments about how we should meet it. I just want us to look and see what our habits are and see if they're satisfying for us. Because the habits of our life have a really strong momentum and they carry through right to the time of our dying. And so the question that arises is, what habits do I want to create in my living? Not only that will sort of satisfy me now, but also that they will be there in the time of my dying. You talk about in the book um, one of the uh, of Lorenzo, who he, this idea of the he talks about the the coolness of the breeze and the softness of the sheets, this being present in a in a experience of what's what's bringing him joy now, and and I and my thought in that was, but for us all to be able to have that presence to our sheets, to the breeze, to what is actually filling our life instead of, and I, I think you say this in the beginning of the book, this idea of um, of patience is, is sort of waiting for, some, we're thinking something better is coming. But to actually be able to be in the exquisiteness of what we're experiencing right then, the coolness of the sheets, the breeze. Yeah, I mean, the, the fellow that you're talking about, Lorenzo, you know, um, one day, shortly before he died, you know, he called me into his room and he said, I want to thank you, Frank. I'm happier now than I've ever been before. And this is a man who wanted to take his life, which is because he had terminal lung cancer and he couldn't imagine a future with any dignity in it. And that's how he came to be with us at the hospice. 
And I said, what do you mean you're happier now than you've ever been? You know, just a few weeks ago, you were telling me how you wanted to kill yourself because you couldn't write in your journals and, and walk in the park. And he said, oh, that, that was just chasing desire. I thought that was a remarkable statement to make. And I said, what do you mean? That these activities aren't important to you anymore? And he said, no, no, it's not the activities that bring me joy. It's the attention to the activities. And he said, now my pleasure comes from the coolness of the breeze and the softness of the sheets. That's what we're talking about. Uh, I've been around for a man that I'd met in a psychiatric unit, actually. So but that's, And that we have the opportunity in every moment, no matter no matter what's happening in our lives, is the attention to the activities. Absolutely. And we all, in an instant, we have that. That's right. That's right. Now, some would say, listening to this conversation, well, some of those activities aren't so nice to be around. And I would agree. You know, sitting in traffic is no fun. Right? Um, you know, watching someone we love die is no fun. This is hard. Right? I'm not romantic about this. But I think one of the questions that's most useful in meditation and in life is to ask, what else is here? What else is here? Even when we find ourselves in the midst of a particular struggle, ask, what else is here? And it's not just to find some silver lining. It's to open up our vision to include more of the picture. And frequently when we do that, we hear or see or understand something that we couldn't quite see when we were you know, had our nose down looking only at the problem, uh, trying to find a solution for the problem. So open up, take a backward step, we say in Zen practice, and see what else is here. Mm -hmm. In addition to, it doesn't take away what's difficult, but in addition to that, what other resources might be here also to help me deal with this particular difficulty that I find myself in the midst of? This is maybe part of the issue with this idea of a good death is that it keeps the scope very narrow. It has to fit into this particular what is a good death look like rather than being able to see what else is there in that attention to it. Exactly, exactly. You know, we get fixed on the outcome um, and we don't really see what's happening in the process. You know, dying can be awfully messy, you know, People leave skid marks, you know, dragging their heels as they go to death. And, and some people, you know, turn against the wall and they, and they never come back again, you know. Um, but also I see regular people, and I work with people living on the streets of San Francisco, living on park benches, regular people who discover in their time of dying um, a kindness that they've been looking for all their life or an understanding that they had been you know, struggling to, to come to all of their life. And sometimes they come to a place that's more expanded, more open, um, fresh and new. Um, now that might happen in the final weeks of life, the final days, even in the final minutes of life. And we could reasonably say, that's too late. And I would agree, it's too late. But here's the thing. If, it's, if that possibility exists then, will it exist now? We need not wait until the time of our dying to make that expansion, to know more of who we actually are. Um, we can use death as a kind of impetus, uh, an inspiration, a mirror, actually, to help us lead our lives in a way that's um, fulfilling.
fulfilling and meaningful and purposeful and, and hopefully characterized by more love and wisdom. Read for us, would you, um, on page 85, to be human? 85. Let's see. Let me get to this in my book. Oh, yeah. Here we are. Hmm. To be human is much more than being born, getting an education, finding the right partner, and getting a pretty house on a nice street, just so that you can sleep, wake, work, go to bed, and do it all over again. It's an invitation to feel everything, to come into direct contact with the strange, beautiful, horrible, and often perfectly ordinary thing we call life. It's an opportunity to be conscious of the fact that some of us will make love while others make war. To recognize the truth that there are babies like my granddaughter born into loving arms and caressed by a mother who kisses her bright future into her child's cheeks. And there are babies like Carolyn, a woman I knew whose parents left her in a dumpster. To embrace the night screams in refugee camps and giggling children in living rooms under tents made of couch pillows and bed sheets. There is devastation and hopelessness and there is a passion and a holy communion, a holy commitment rather, to create a better future for everyone. There is me writing and you reading and the separation between us and there is the unity we feel almost immediately when we are reminded that there is love. And I would add to this, you know, there are children in our schools being shot and other other children who are speaking truth to power. You know, there there's forests that are burning down or being cut down and there is new life appearing all the time. So, I think it's really important that we embrace both sides of these equations, not just, not to be Pollyanna about it, but to really, to really hold the beauty and horror of this life. You know, James Baldwin, the great African-American writer, yeah. said, not everything that can be faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed if it's not faced. And so, uh, you know, I think, it's, I think that's a great piece of wisdom from which to live our lives. And sometimes all that is for us is taking that mindful breath to ourselves. We yeah. don't have to always be out. We don't have to yeah. start out. We can start in. Yeah, I hope so. You know, you know, just a simple pause. You know, can we just pause for a moment? You know, a pause is an opportunity to relax, to not be swept away by the momentum of habit. You know, it's an opportunity to remember who we actually are and what we're doing here. And then relax. Really relax, you know. Mindfulness emerges much more easily in a relaxed mind, body, and heart. And then open. You know, can we really liberate ourselves for a few moments from our ideas about what we think is possible in this moment? You know, to be open-minded is to have a mind of spaciousness, but also 
one that's characterized by curiosity and wonder. And then can we allow, can we simply allow our experience? And, and that takes us beyond the whole idea of accepting and rejecting altogether, beyond hope and fear. And then I think there's an opportunity for us to become intimate, to really become intimate with life, with ourselves, to understand that you don't have to be someone special, that there's no place special to go, nothing special to do. And can actually enter into this moment with some degree of awareness and kindness and see what it has to teach us. That's what yeah, science books have taught me, yeah. You have this wonderful quote from David White, um, apprentice yourself to the curve of your own disappearance. Yeah, isn't that a great line? It's yeah. great. But to your to bring it back to your point of to apprentice ourselves, that there is this, it is a practice. And I think we sometimes, we don't give ourselves the benefit of the doubt and we think we should know all these things. It's so simple, we should know this. But in fact, you know, like exercise, it is a daily practice. It's not just, oh, I went to the gym, so now I'm done because I did that last week. Well, I meditated once, so that's it. That it is an ongoing and we could be gentle with ourselves in, sometimes we have to pick up the practice Again, it's an apprentice. We are apprenticing ourselves. Yeah, it's a beautiful we, way to say it. Yeah. It's beautiful. I, I think that's the holy commitment I was speaking about in the piece I read to you, you know, to create a better future. That, that means that we have to do our homework. You know, we have to look at ourselves. You know, so many, you know, so many times I think we have this expectation that we should know how to do this life, you know, but it didn't come with a manual. <laughs> you know, we, you know, our TVs and, and, and digital recorders have more information about how to operate them than how it is to operate this life. So, um, so we need some kind of regular practice, some practice of looking inward so that we have a different way of looking out. Um, and I think mindfulness practice, meditation practice can be one of those tools, but it's not the only tool. I mean, go walk in nature and feel ourselves to be part of things. You know, when you're a monk in, in Thailand, one of the things that happens when you're a novice monk is your head is shaved and your street clothes are, are given away and you're given novice robes. And then the instruction is, go out and sit in the jungle, go out and sit in the forest until you know you belong. You know you belong. Yeah? And I think so, one of the great pains that we have in our culture is that people often don't, appreciate that, that they belong. They live their life as if they were a separate entity. And we have such a high, you know, we place our individual separate self on such a high, you know, podium that it's an awful fall when we fall from there. Um, we are absolutely unique and not separate. Absolutely unique, beautiful, you know, differentiated, but not separate. And that's, that's the truth of our lives. But we have to look and explore to understand that. Yeah, yeah it's why death is such a beautiful tool. It's such a beautiful tool. Yes. Yeah. yeah, because at, when the veils get thin, if you will, between the worlds, whether that's at birth or death, we, you know, we kind of stand in awe of those moments. You know, partly because they're mysterious and we don't understand them, 
and mystery engages us in a sense of wonder, uh, some kind of not knowing, which is not ignorance. Not knowing is not ignorance. Ignorance is we know something, but it's the wrong thing. And it's just a, there's a lot of that going on in the world right now. Not knowing is a kind of um, openness, uh, willingness to discover. Um, what an exciting way to lead our lives. And if we led our lives with that kind of habit, imagine how we might meet our dying. You know, we might see it as the greatest adventure of a lifetime. It might be, really have a possibility for tremendous transformation, not only for the person who's dying, but for the rest of us who might be accompanying them. Well, I was going to say, because imagine how we would lead our living. Right. right. So the dying would become a culmination rather than a failure. And, and and this is not, I'm not romantic about dying. Look, this is the hardest thing we will ever do. It's messy and it's painful sometimes and it can be terribly tragic. But it also can be um, exquisite and it can be transformative. I'm not, um, I'm, I want to embrace it all. I want us to include the whole package, you know, and uh, see what it can teach us. Beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful. Okay, I'm going to stop us here because I I could go on and <laughs> go on okay. and on. And I appreciate that you that you are and you do and you're teaching all over so that we can continue to get uh, we can continue to dive in this. Yeah, real joy to speak with you. Real joy to speak with you. Thank you. I feel the same. Thank you for listening to this exit interview with author Frank Ostaseski. To hear more from Frank and others, check out our exit interviews and Bevival podcasts. Just click on the navigation bar. Every visit supports deaf literacy. This is Deborah Medwin. Please come back again and please share our work on social media.